want you to turn over in your Bibles. We've been going through Romans chapter 8, and we're just uh, going to touch on it a little bit this morning as well because it fits right in with Resurrection Sunday. And so Romans chapter 8, I want to read um, the section of Scripture that um, we've been in the last several weeks, and then we're just going to focus in on uh, verse 34 today. But Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 31, the word of God reads, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he also, not also with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that... Who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Excuse me. Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. Love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We've been looking at this text, and I want to focus in today on verse 34. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised. Jesus died. More than that, he arose. Um, I want to look at this morning the implications of the resurrection of our wonderful mediator and savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. I think we come to these verses today, and a lot of times we take these things for granted. Um, we celebrate the birth of Christ at Easter. We celebrate his death and resurrection, or at the birth of Christ at Christmas. We celebrate his death and resurrection at Easter. And sometimes we can grow complacent with some of these verses. And up to this point in our study in Romans chapter 8, God has overwhelmingly shown us how we are secure in Christ. Let me tell you, if you're here today and you're struggling with security in your life, you just don't feel secure in this world with all the dangers and toils about, there's a way that you can be secure. That security can only come from God through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I would press upon you today to cry out to him to forgive you of your sins, to repent, to turn from your sins, and turn to the Savior. Because he alone is the one who can save you and give you the security that we've been talking about the last several weeks. It's very clear in verses 28 to 30, God is is working, God is choosing, God is predestining, God is calling, God is justifying, God is glorifying. This is a work that comes from the hand of God. This isn't something we generate. I grew up in a church where I was taught that, you know what, you had to do certain things, and if you did those certain things, then maybe eventually one day God would let you into heaven after you died and went to purgatory. And then maybe if people were still able to pay for the mass and pray for you, eventually you would go to to heaven. 
That's a lie from the pit of hell. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible teaches to be absent from the Lord if you're trusting in him is to be, or to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. When you leave this life, beloved, you go only one of two places, heaven or hell. The reason that you would go to hell is because you deserve it, as I do. We all do. We're all lost in our sin. The Bible says that there's none righteous. There's not even one. What does righteous mean? Righteous means to be perfect like God is perfect. Anybody here perfect today? I don't think so. We're not perfect because we know that we do wrong things. We call those wrong things sin. That's what the Bible calls them. We can't excuse it, even though we live in a society that loves to excuse sin. Having an affair is, or having, committing adultery is now called having an affair. Practicing homosexuality is a lifestyle. Killing the unborn child is, well, that's just a woman's choice. See, we've dumbed down everything to think that, oh, everything's okay. But in our heart of hearts, I think that you know, as I do, that things are not okay. And the Bible says very clearly that we all need to come to terms and come to grips with that sin that holds us captive. And so when Paul answers these questions, he asks these questions. We call these five unanswerable questions because they aren't answerable. If God is for us, who can be against us? Put in a name. Is that name greater than God? I don't think so. Second question he asks is, Who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all? How will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? All these things that we have in our life, the good, the bad, and the ugly, God has the ability, beloved, to take these things and turn them around for his good and for our good. Even, I would dare say, our own sin. Somehow he uses it for his good and for our good in the long run. And the third question we looked at is, who will bring a charge against those whom God has chosen? How will... Anybody bring a charge against God's elect. If God said, you know what, I'm going to protect and save these people, who's going to come against God and say, oh, no, you're not? Do you think the enemy, the devil, has more power than God? I don't believe so. God created him as Lucifer. And so we we stop and we think there's no greater being than God himself. And even when the death of Jesus was mentioned in verse or in the question two, there it's it's mentioned as as God giving up His Son. It's God doing this work of salvation for us. And so we come to the the fourth of these five questions, and He says there in verse thirty four, "Who is to condemn? Who is to condemn?" You know, the the world is full of people who feel condemned every day. Some of them rightly so. But as believers, remember what we learned, verse 1, Romans chapter 8. What's it say? There is therefore now 
No condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Are you feeling a little condemned today? You feeling a little pressed upon? Maybe you need to cry out to God and ask Him to save you so that you too can be in Christ Jesus. So that you too can look at that verse and say, you know what? There's no condemnation against me because I am in Christ Jesus. So Paul asked that question, who is he that condemns? And there's no answer because of the verse and what it says. It says, Christ Jesus who died. We just celebrated Good Friday, right? We know what happened on Good Friday. Christ died for our sins. He was put on a cross. He was executed by the hands of evil men. But as we studied on Good Friday, we know that God was the author of that execution. God killed his own son. Jesus willingly was killed by his father on the cross for our sin, out of love for us, so that one day we wouldn't have to bear the brunt of our own sin. Can you imagine one day standing before a holy God covered with your sin? What would you say? What could you say? Well, I, I helped these people. You know, when I was down there on earth, I fed, fed some homeless people. Helped shelter some people. I gave some money to the church. I even went to church on occasion. It was nice to my neighbors. Man, I was a good dad. I, I worked hard. I provided for my family. I was a loyal husband to my wife. Doesn't, doesn't any of that stuff, God, get me anything? And the Bible says very clearly that there's going to be people who even do works in the name of God. In Matthew chapter 7, it says many people are going to stand before Jesus Christ one day and say, Lord, Lord. They're going to call him Lord. <laughs> and they're going to say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we cast out demons? I mean, that's a pretty big deal. I've never cast a demon out, nor would I really want to. I don't want to be around the demon, right? Some people go out there and hunt for him. Not me. I just stay as far away from that stuff as possible. Because I know that, you know what? My God is greater and I don't need to mess with that piddly stuff. So it's important to understand that when that, when that verse tells us that, okay, that people have cast out demons in my name. They're saying this to Christ in your name. Uh, you know, we've healed the sick. We've done this. We've done that. And he says what? Depart from me. I never knew you. It wasn't that they were once a Christian and now they lost. No, that can't happen. That's the the text that we're looking at. We're secure in Christ. Once you come to Christ for salvation, your sins are forgiven. Past, present, future. I mean, it's a really good deal when you stop and think about it. I mean, you get all your sins paid for. And then you get the promise of eternal life in heaven. You don't have to worry about falling into the depths of hell and and burning in in fire and brimstone for all eternity. I mean, think if it was just a week. That would be horrible. Have you ever been burned? Have you ever burned yourself? Or, you know, I I saw on the news a gal that was part of these, these events over in Brussels. These bombings. And she was in the, the burn bandage. And she said, yeah, I, I, I was part of this explosion. And the translator was saying that 
she was she was walking out of this this area where this bomb went off and she felt like she was on fire. And she walked past the mirror and she could see her face was kind of like like just burned. Like there was no skin there. It was just And she said I didn't want to focus on that, but I could feel the intense pain. It was just beyond and I'm thinking, wow, that's just a burn, you know, here on earth. Can you imagine what it's going to be like for those who are in a place that burns forever? And you don't burn up. The Bible does not teach the doctrine of annihilation. Okay, well, you know what? They just go there and they burn you up and that's it. No, no. It, it says it's forever. Where, where the body doesn't really burn up. <laughs> it just burns. Nothing is able to, you know, you don't decay in the ground. It's, it's, it's not that kind of a, a hell. It's, it's for all eternity, beloved. This is what lays in the balance. Jesus Christ died so that we don't have to do that. We don't have to go to a place called hell. We can go to a place called heaven. I mean, it's not rocket science, right? Hey, do you want to spend eternity in hell or do you want to spend eternity in heaven? I mean, you know, it's pretty common sense. You could ask a two-year-old, three-year-old that question if they could talk and they could probably give you the right answer. But the question is, how do you get there? How do you get to heaven? That's what should be weighing on your heart, your soul. You know, you don't get to heaven by coming to church. You don't get to, have, be, get to heaven by being a good person or a good husband or a hard worker or loyal or honest. That's not how you get to heaven. There's only one way to heaven. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but through me. Well, what did he mean? He meant through his sacrifice on the cross. If you're trusting in your own works, if you're trusting in your own religiosity to save you, you will be lost one day. God doesn't want you to be lost. We definitely don't want you to be lost. We want you to cry out to God and say, Lord, you know what? I know that I'm not perfect. And this guy says the only way to get to heaven is to be perfect. I know that I have sin in my life. But Jesus has paid for my sins. So why wouldn't you turn to the Savior and say, Lord, save me? It'd be like somebody drowning in a pool and a lifeguard sitting there. And you're drowning and you know you're drowning. You're going under and you're coming back up and you're gasping for air. And rather than cry out for help, you say, well, I don't want to bother him. (laughs) I can handle this. As each time you go under the water, it's harder enough to get back up and get another gasp of air to cry out. See, God wants you to cry out for help. Don't allow your pride to keep you from bending your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because you know what? The Bible says that one day every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. But you know what? For some people, unfortunately, when that time comes, it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late. They're going to recognize Christ as Lord. But unfortunately, they're also going to have to bear the consequences of Christ being their judge. And Christ is going to be able to put in the balance and say, okay, here's your good life over here. And here's your sin. The sin is always going to win out. 
The sin is always going to win out. Because we can't be good enough. So Paul says here, it's Jesus Christ who died. More than that, he says, was raised to, to life. When we think of the death of Christ, it, it's so important that we understand what Paul is saying here. See there, he just he uses four words. He says, Christ Jesus who died. That's it. That's all he had to say. He had already gone over all this earlier in the letter. In those earlier chapters, we learned that Jesus died for our sin, that he made atonement for it, which means that he brought together, he made the ability for us to be brought back together with God. That he was a propitiation for our sin, a satisfaction. He offered himself as a sacrifice, and God said, you know what, I'm satisfied with that sacrifice. If it would have been you or I dying on that cross, it would not have satisfied God. Why? Because we're not a perfect sacrifice. We have sin. And because Jesus had no sin of his own for which to atone for, he didn't have to pay for his own sin. He did it on our behalf as a substitute, the Bible says. Some years ago, a great... Swiss theologian Karl Barth, he was asked, what is the most important word in the Bible? And the the person that asked this great theologian thought for sure he would say love. Oh, love. That's what we hear today, right? It's such a godly quality. But instead, he answered this. Hyper. Which is a Greek term. It's a preposition, and it means this, on behalf of, or in place of. See, Paul, or Karl Barth called the most important word in the Bible, a word that means on behalf of, or in place of, because it signifies the death of Jesus in our place. Jesus died on the cross in our place. When he died on the cross, he didn't die a general death. He died specifically for you, for me. Your name was on his mind when he died, when he went through that suffering. He died so that we might not have to die spiritually. What do I mean die spiritually? Die spiritually means basically you die a couple ways. You die physically, right, when you leave this earth. We were in a cemetery this morning where a lot of people have gone who have died. And their bodies are buried there. That's physical death. A separation of the physical body from the soul. But to die spiritually is called the second death. That means, you know what, after you leave this life, what happens? Well, if you go to hell, that's a spiritual death. Why? Because you're separated from God for all eternity. And that's such a pressing thing to think about. I mean, we understand that as believers, and we've probably known it as a long time. Why do we keep on talking about the death of Christ, the death of Christ? Why is it so important, you may ask? I'd have to say this. If you really do know this, and you really do live by faith in Christ and his atonement, there probably is no need to keep on repeating it. 
But those who know it best generally are those who love hearing it the most often. We sing a hymn once in a while. Catherine Henke's hymn. It says, I love to tell the story for those who know it best seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. We need to be reminded of that. I suggest we do need to hear it, and we need to hear it often. We need to visit the death of Christ as much as we can. And that's why Paul keeps repeating himself in Romans over and over. He's talking about the death of Christ, the death of Christ. He's writing about assurance. He wants you to know that there's no way that God would send his son to die such a cruel death and to undergo the spiritual suffering that he went through on Calvary to leave our salvation up to us. Trust me, God has our salvation secured. He's writing this about assurance, about eternal security. And it's true, even as believers, when we fall into sin, whether they're sins of commission or sins of omission, as some of us from our backgrounds understand. Perhaps the sin is simply doubting God at his word. Perhaps the sin is, is saying, well, you know what? I know that God is trying to work this out in my life, but boy, my, my job is, is just not working out right now. I don't think God's helping me here. Or you know what? My kids are a mess. I've been praying for them for years, and you know, it's just not working out. Or maybe, you know what? The relationship that I have right now is, is just on the rocks. Yeah, I know the Bible says it's going to all work out if we just do things his way. But, you know, I'd rather just do it my own way. I'm just going to give up on God. See, that's a mistake. Sometimes we get to the point where we find ourselves even questioning our own salvation. Maybe, maybe we were saved and now we've, we've lost it or we've fallen away. Paul is telling these believers that can't happen. That's an impossibility with God. If you find yourself thinking like this, you need to hear that old, old story again. You need to hear what Jesus did for your sin, bearing the punishment of God in your place. You say, well, what if I'm a Christian and and suppose I sin? Well, first of all, I'd say, don't say suppose. (laughs) Because you're going to sin, right? I mean, that's just a given life. We all sin in a myriad of ways probably every day. We sin and we continue to sin. That's not the right question. The question is rather, did Jesus die for my sin or did he not? That's the question you need to ask. And if he did, then the punishment for that sin has been undertaken by Jesus in our place. And there's no one, not even God, who can condemn you. If you're trusting in Christ. Such an important truth for Christians to understand. And don't get me wrong. We all go through doubts. We all go through up, downs, down times in our spiritual life. And we're free to ask God questions. And we're free to go to God and say, you know what? I don't understand this. There's a lot of times I do that.
But if you're outright disbelieving God's word, then you might want to reconsider that. Because this is the only truth that's going to allow you to understand what heaven's about and how to get there through Christ. So Paul says Christ died. He died for you. He died for me. He hung on the cross. And at the end of that season on the cross in Christ's life, he uttered the words, it is finished. It's complete. Paid in full. Forever. Second thing I want you to see here is Christ's resurrection. The second reason why we can be assured of our salvation, beloved, is on the basis of Jesus' work for us in his resurrection. It says there, Paul says in verse 34, talks about Jesus' death, and then he says, more than that, who was raised to life. I mean, that's a kind of a strange way of introducing the doctrine of the resurrection because it's linked directly to Christ's death, as if it adds something to it. If the atonement is a finished work, how can that be true? See, Paul explained earlier in Romans when he was dealing with the work of Christ more extensively, he explained this. Think back to what the, the apostle said at the, end of chapter, uh, at the end of chapter 4 as he brought this first section of Romans to a close. He says in Romans chapter 4, verse 25, He, Jesus, was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. What does it mean, raised to life for our justification? Both the resurrection and justification are, are, are words of God. Uh, justification basically means the declaration that you are now righteous. Not because of who you are, but because of what Christ has done. That's what happens when we come to the cross and we acknowledge our own sin and we turn from that sin and we embrace a Savior who has died in our place, who was a perfect sacrifice. And when we allow ourselves to trust Christ in such a manner. And God does that work of transforming our heart and giving us the faith to believe in the work that Christ has done for us. Then God says, you know what? Even though you're not righteous, you deserve hell like everybody else, but because you're putting the faith that I gave you in the Lord Jesus Christ on the work that he did on Calvary and you believe that he died and that he was raised on the third day and you believe that he's the son of God, you know what? I'm declaring you righteous. I'm justifying you. I'm making you as if you had never even sinned once. You're perfect, just like my son. Stop and think about that. Who wouldn't want that? Think if you could go to the bank today. Walk in the door and say, no, I've got all this debt. Oh, let me see. And you give him the papers. He says, you know what? Don't worry about it. It's gone. <laughs> yeah, right. No, seriously, it's gone. Matter of fact, I put a little extra money in your, in your bank account for you. And you go to your ATM and you look and it's like, whoa. And you're waiting kind of bated breath the next month when the bills come. And nothing's automatically taken out of the account. You don't get any paper bill and you're going, wow. And you go on and you look up your account and it used to say $3,500. Now it says balance, beep, zero. 
And you're going, I can't believe it. So you look up another account. Zero. Everything forgiven. Now we can relate to that materially, can't we? Because <laughs> we live in a world that deals with such things. But spiritually, sometimes we have a hard time understanding that's exactly what Christ did for us. He paid for our sin completely and forgave us completely. And that forgiveness is available to all who would come to Christ and say, you know what, I know that I'm not perfect, I'm a sinner, I need to put my faith, my trust in Christ on the work that he's done for us. When Jesus was alive on earth, he said that he was going to die for sin. He was going to become a ransom for many. In time, he did die. That's exactly what happened. And he was placed in that tomb, and he was wrapped in burial cloths, and the big stone was put in front of the, the tomb, as the Bible says, and he lay there for three days. Had he died for sin? He said that was what he was going to do. But the words alone do not prove his death was an atonement. Suppose Jesus was deluded. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of crazy people. What if he only thought he was the son of God? Maybe, Maybe he was wrong. Maybe he just had this delusion of grandeur that he was the savior. Or think of it this way. Maybe he wasn't really sinless. After all, I mean, I don't know if everybody was with him 24 hours a day. I'm sure he, maybe he sinned sometime in his life. Just a little bit. In that case, he would have been a sinner himself. <laughs> and his death could have not atoned even for his own sin, let alone the sins of others. The matter would remain in doubt. See, the fact that Jesus simply died is one thing. But three days later, on that morning of the resurrection, the resurrection comes and the body of Jesus is raised and the the stone is rolled back to the opening of the tomb, not to let Jesus out, by the way, so the woman could go in, so they could see that it was empty. Now there, there is no doubt Because it's inconceivable that God the Father should verify the claims of Jesus if he was not uniquely the Son of God. And not therefore a true and effective Savior for his people. R.A. Torrey writes it this way. He says, I look at the cross of Christ and I know that atonement has been made for my sins. I know at an I look at an empty sepulcher and the risen and ascended Lord, and I know that atonement has been accepted. There no longer remains a single sin on me, no matter how many or how great my sins have been. My sins may have been as high as the mountains, but in the light of the resurrection of the atonement that covers them is as high as the heavens. My sins may have been as deep as the oceans, but in light of the resurrection, the atonement that swallows them up is as deep as eternity. See, who is it that condemns? Who could possibly condemn us if Jesus has died for us and has been raised as proof of our justification? I shared this this morning at the other service, but it's kind of like 
You know, when you cash a check and, and you know, you, you go to the supermarket and they run it through. Okay, you paid for the, paid for the bill. But what do you do? Okay, you, you usually go home and the next day or so you go on the computer. Oh, is that, did that check clear? <laughs> right? You want to know, did that check clear? Did they cash it? Doesn't it irritate you when, when uh, it irritates me when somebody gives you a check, like maybe a gift, and then, and then they, you know, they don't cash it. So what are you doing, you know? Sometimes, you know, be blessed with a gift or something. My wife holds on the check. I'm like, what are you doing? Cash that check. These poor people are probably pulling their hair out there. Why haven't they cashed the check yet? You know, this is because you want to balance your, you want to make everything right. Well, listen, on, on Good Friday, the check was cashed. But on Resurrection Sunday, that's when the check cleared. See, that's, that's so key to understand that. All right. And so here we see not only the death of Christ, but the resurrection of Christ. And the third thing here is Christ's enthronement at God's right hand. This even gets better. I mean, it's like you're climbing this huge mountaintop and the, 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 the scenery just gets more and more beautiful as we go. But it deals with the ascension and it deals with the enthronement of the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't talk about the ascension much. But in some, some faiths, they even have ascension day. And they celebrate the ascension of Christ. The time after the resurrection when he ascended to glory. In his glorified body. There's two teachings here. First, the glorification of Jesus. And that was really an answer to prayer as he prayed in John 17. He said in John 17 verses 4 and 5. I have brought you glory on earth. This is Jesus praying. By completing the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. See, Jesus didn't start his existence in Bethlehem in a manger. Jesus is an eternal being. Jesus is God. So Jesus existed for all of eternity. Well, where did he exist before that little manger in Bethlehem? He existed in heaven, in a perfect place, (laughs) In a place of glory. And when you stop and you think about it, I mean, you know, have you ever been on vacation for a couple of weeks and, and, and maybe, you know, you really, really went all out and it's just a beautiful time, a beautiful resort and maybe even one of those all-inclusive things. I've never been to one of those, but I've heard about them. They're pretty cool. So, you know, you, you think about that, okay? And you've been out there maybe, you know, five days or 10 days and, and you realize, wow, this isn't reality, <laughs> Right? This has got to come to an end. This vacation soon is going to be over. And you have that kind of pit in your stomach. And you, oh, I got to go back to work and, you know, no more playing by the pool and enjoying the, the sun and, and all these things. Well, you think about Jesus. He was in a perfect place, not just some fancy resort. He was in a perfect place. And yet he was willing to leave that perfect place and come to this place we call earth. Now, I don't know about you, but that doesn't seem fair. I mean, you know, I mean, here he's in, in heaven. He's glorified. He's, 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 he's just in a perfect place. And yet he says, you know what? I'm going to go down to this sin-stained, ugly world, and I'm going to live for 30-some years, and then I'm going to endure a horrible death. 
because I love these people and I want to provide a way of salvation. So his glorification was when he went back to that place after he was resurrected. And we know that he is at the right hand of the Father. The Bible tells us that. According to Acts chapter 7, verse 56, when Stephen was being stoned, it gave us an indication that before he died, he saw the glorified Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And Paul was stopped and redirected, remember, by Jesus' voice on the way to Damascus. Saul was, and, and that's where his conversion, where he became Paul. I mean, the Apostle Paul, the guy that wrote the book that we're reading right now, used to kill Christians. And yet God transformed him. So don't sit here this morning and say, well, you don't know my background. I don't know if God can. No, trust me. God can change you. He can change anybody through the power of his word and through the power of the Spirit. Even the Apostle John later saw visions of Jesus. And so he ascended into heaven. But it also says that he was seated at the right hand of God. The right hand of God is considered a place of honor. Remember the apostles? When Jesus was down here, they kept on asking him, well, who's going to sit next to you? You know, they wanted the place of honor. That's what they were after. And that alone is significant when it comes to our eternal security. Because it means the one who has achieved it for us by his death has been honored for that achievement. God is, is, is saying, you know what, I'm honoring my son because he's at my right hand. You hear the, the illustration we use today, you know, hey, he's my right hand man. Well, what's that mean? I mean, he's, he's right there, right? I mean, that's, that's, that's kind of a, a place of honor. It's a place you're going to depend on that person. It's, it's, a, it's a place of honor. But the most important thing about Jesus' session here when he's seated at the right hand of God is that the idea that he's seated implies a finished work. The work is finished. I mean, think about it. What do you do when you're done working hard out in the yard or whatever? I mean, you don't just stand there in the middle of the yard for the next couple hours. No, you usually go inside and you sit down. Why? Because you're tired. Okay? And the work is hopefully done. Usually it's not, but we think it, like to think it is, so, you know, we take a break anyway. But when Christ sat down, it implies here that this work is finished. And the person rests from the work. That's what God did in Genesis 2, too, when he rested after the work of creation. The point is developed in the letter of Hebrews. If you turn over to Hebrews chapter 10, I just want to read this, this verse for you because it's just a couple verses because it shows us so clearly about the work of Christ. And this is talking about the priestly work of Christ and how superior the work of Christ is and how it replaces all the work done by earthly priests. That's why I'm not a priest. We're all kingdom of priests but I'm not a priest in the sense of an Old Testament priest and it tells us here 
in Hebrews chapter 10, look at verse 11. It says, in every priest, here's what the priests would do. They would stand daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices. Then it says this, which can never take away sins. Why would they do that? They were doing it in anticipation of the final offering by God. They were instructed to do that. It was an act of obedience on their part. But you think about it. Here this guy is doing his job over and over and over again, and it's meaningless. As far as paying for their sins, you're not going to pay for somebody's sins when you sacrifice a lamb or a goat or any other animal. But it says in verse 12, but when Christ... Don't you love the buts in Scripture? But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice. Do you see the dynamic? Here you got all these priests. And there wasn't just one priest. There's a bunch of them. Because that's all they did. They go in and go into the holy, holy sacrifice. And just over and over and over. I mean, it was just a bloody mess when you stop and think about it. It really was. But it was anticipation of this sacrifice, this, this one sacrifice. But when this priest, Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, what did he do? What's it say? He sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. It was done. There's nothing else that could be done for people's sins. There's no other way to be saved is another way of saying it. You could die a million deaths. Horrible deaths. That's not going to save you. You could pray a million prayers. That's not going to save you. The only thing that can save you, beloved, is putting your faith, your trust In this Savior who died on your behalf, who gave his life a ransom for us. Interesting thing, in the temple, when the priests would do these sacrifices, in the temple area there, there were no seats. There were no chairs. These guys couldn't take a break. They had to work. They had to sacrifice over and over and over again. And it completed absolutely nothing. Nothing. Yet when Jesus had offered his sacrifice, it was accepted by God the Father, and he showed that work was completed by sitting down at the right hand of God. So you ask, where is Jesus now? He's seated at God's right hand. So whenever you doubt your salvation, maybe you're becoming disturbed about different things, Look to Jesus at the right hand of the Father. Realize that he is there because his work of sacrifice is completed. And that nothing can ever add to it or take away from it. And that you, as a born-again person who is trusting in Christ and in Christ alone, that you are therefore completely secure in him. There's now therefore no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. That's a good place to be. So 
Stop and think about it this way. What would have to happen to you for you to lose your salvation? What would have to happen? Once you have been foreknown, predestined, called, justified, and glorified by God. What would have to happen for you to lose that? For that to happen, God would have to throw the entire plan of salvation into reverse. (laughs) What do I mean? Jesus would have to rise from his throne in heaven where he's seated now, go backward through the ascension. We'll call that the descension. He would come back down. He would go back into the tomb. He would be placed back on the cross and then come down from it. See, for you to perish, the atonement would have never had to happen. I mean, it's just an impossibility when you stop and think about it. Only then could you be lost. But I'm here to tell you it did happen according to God's plan. And the fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead, not only that, but he was brought to heaven. Not only that, but he was seated at the right hand of God, the Father. That's the proof that it has been accomplished. That's the proof that your security is now as certain as the Lord's enthronement in heaven right now. Which means that your security as a believer is as unshakable as Jesus himself. The last thing here quickly is Christ's present intercession there in verse 34. He says, Jesus is also interceding for us. It's a present thing. It's something he does now. In light of the ideas of accusation, in light of judgment and acquittal, that have appeared throughout these different texts of Scripture. What is Jesus doing? He's interceding. He's pleading the benefits of his death on our behalf in the face of Satan, in the face of any other individual accusers you, you may have. Paul has introduced this verse here with the question, who is it that condemns? The answer is no one. No one. As long as Jesus died, been raised, and is now seated at the right hand of God, and is making intercession for us, there is no need for us to think that anyone is condemning us. When you stop and think about it, Why would Paul say that? Why would Paul say, well, who is it that condemns you? Martin Lloyd-Jones says it this way, there is no need for our Lord to defend the believer. He has already done so, once and forever. But, in any case, it is God the Father himself who sent his Son to do the work. There can never be any query or question in God's mind with regard to any of his children. See, sometimes we misunderstand what this intercession is all about. In this context here, it has to refer to Jesus' prayers for his people. Much like his prayers. Uh, prayer in John 17, in which he prays for and receives all the possible benefits of his death for them, for the living, 
of their Christian lives. It means that there is is no need that you can possibly have to which the Lord Jesus Christ is ever indifferent with you, ever. It means that there is no problem to which he will turn a deaf ear or for which he will refuse your approach. Donald Gray Barnhouse says it this way, You do not have a problem too great for the power of Christ. You do not have a problem too complicated for the wisdom of Christ. You do not have a problem too small for the love of Christ. You do not have a sin too deep for the atoning blood of Christ. One of the most wonderful phrases ever spoken about Jesus, he writes, is that, which is found on several occasions in the gospel, it is that Jesus was moved with what? Compassion. He loved men. He loved women. He loves you. Do you have a problem? He can meet it. doesn't matter what it is. The moment that that problem comes to you in your life, he knows all about it. If there is a fear in your heart, it is immediately known to him. If there is a sorrow in your heart, it is immediately a grief to his heart. If there is a bereavement in your life or any other emotion that comes from any child of God, the same sorrow, grief, or bereavement is immediately written on the heart of Christ. We find written in the Word of God, in all their afflictions, he was what? Afflicted. See, Jesus intercedes for us in precisely those things. He's heard in his intercession. He ministers to you out of the exhausted treasure house of all glory. See, that's why Paul can write in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, and my God will meet all your needs according to what? His glorious riches in Christ Jesus. Some of you remember the song Bobby McFerrin wrote, Don't Worry, Be Happy. I like that song, personally. I, I kind of like it. Catchy tune. You know, if you're not in Christ this morning, I would worry. Because that song doesn't apply to you. (laughs) It doesn't. You have a lot to worry about. Because if you have not turned to Christ, you're still lost in your sin. You're still on your way to an eternal place of hell forever. You're still trying to Flesh it out here on this sinful world and filled with frustration and worry. And you should worry, frankly, because your sins have not been paid for if you haven't trusted in Christ. You need to turn to him today and cry out to him as your Lord and Savior. Because there's no happiness for one who stands under God's condemnation. But... If you have trusted Christ, there is now no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There can be none because Jesus has died in our place. He has been raised for our justification. He is seated at the right hand of God and now he intercedes for us. Should people with such an intercessor worry? The Son of God is praying on your behalf, interceding for you. You know, in that case, don't worry, be happy is a good thing. (laughs) 
We're instructed not to worry. And so you know what? Leave this place if you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ with happiness on your heart, with a joy beyond understanding. We should rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We thank you this day that we can celebrate the risen Lord. We thank you, Lord, that as we know that Christ came from the grave in a glorified body, and we know that history tells us he was seen by over 500 people. If you're even questioning that, do your research. You'll figure it out real quick. This isn't a fairy tale. This is something that really happened. And it happened to secure our salvation. But it doesn't happen automatically. We need to come to the cross. We need to bow our heart and our knee and acknowledge that we're not the Lord, that Jesus Christ is the Lord, that we're not in control, that God is in control. And you can cry out to him as your Lord and Savior and say, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will hear when it's prayed from a sincere, repentant heart. He'll save you. He'll transform you. He'll make you a new person in Christ. He'll deliver you from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. He'll make you a brand new person in Christ. If you just cry out to him today, And believer, please know that the death and the resurrection of Christ is something that we should visit often. We should never tire of it. We should ever be willing to tell the story over and over and over again. Because it's that story of death and resurrection that secures our salvation. And without that security, what would salvation be? There would be no salvation if salvation were left up to us. And so, Father, we thank you, and we pray that as we leave here today and probably spend time with family and friends, Lord, we pray that you would bless this day, that it would be a time of fellowship and of conversation that honors you. We even ask you to bless our fellowship time over in the fellowship hall after this service, that you bless the food to our bodies and just bless our, our time together. Father, we thank you and we praise you in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll close with a a song.